Merry Christmas. And let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you for the opportunity to be here together to worship you in spirit and in truth. Of course, we only do that if we think about it, if we, if we do business with our own souls and, and call upon our hearts to worship the only thing worthy of worship, the only one worthy of worship, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We have come today, once again, as every Lord's Day, to, to exalt and glory in Jesus and to remind our souls why we live and why we were created and to discover afresh the joy that comes from living with the living Christ and living for the living Christ and living unto the living Christ. Oh, Father, we remember what it was like to live without you. And now we know, we know the joy that you have promised to give to those who would find in you everlasting life, a life that begins not in heaven, but at the moment we first believe. And so we give you praise. Fill us now with the joy of your spirit and the truth of your word. And may it all be to the praise of your glorious grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again this morning, we find ourselves standing, as it were, in the presence of one of the angels of God who was suddenly stepped out of eternity and into time to deliver a, a very important message to an, a virtually unknown, and, and certainly biblically to this point, an unknown teenage girl he came to deliver a message that would literally and radically change not only her life and the life of her family, but all of history. In verses 26 and 27 of Luke chapter 1, we saw last week the messenger arrives, and that messenger was none other than Gabriel. So here we discover that Gabriel has been sent by God to deliver a message to a girl who was a descendant of the great king of Israel, namely David. She was a girl who was still a virgin. She was not married. And she had uh, entered into a betrothal relationship with David, but that relationship had not been consummated. In verses 23 through 35, the message is delivered. And we learned that Mary, while still a virgin, would conceive and bear a son and she was to give him the name Jesus. We talked about that last week. <clears throat> Jesus, coming from a Hebrew word, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh, God, is Savior. He will save his people from their sins. And so Gabriel says to Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. <coughs> I tell you, if you just spend a minute trying to imagine this scene, it doesn't strain the imagination too much to conceive of what Mary must have been experiencing in her soul as she's as she stood before this angel and listening to this incredible message. I mean, certainly like all young women, 
especially young Israeli women living in that time, she certainly hoped to one day get married and have children. In fact, in the nation of Israel, and this should be the case for, for everyone, but certainly in the nation of Israel at the time, children were a badge of honor for women. And not only that, but in Israel, to not have children was considered to be cursed. Uh, right or wrong, it was considered a curse. And witness the fact that Elizabeth, when she found herself pregnant in her old age, she declared in chapter 1, verse 25, you can just glance over there, 125, she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to, listen carefully, to take away my reproach from among the people. And children were not considered inconvenient. They were not considered a bother or a distraction away from something more important like a career. And they were thought of as the fulfillment of God's covenant blessing for his faithful people. But how could Mary possibly experience such a blessing? How could she have a child? She wasn't even married, and she was pure. Only answer, if she was going to have a baby before uh, consummation, it would have to be a miracle. And as we saw last week, the virgin birth is not a throwaway doctrine. It is essential. It is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. As we said last week, if Jesus' father was human rather than divine, then Jesus was not God. And if he, he was not God, then his promises were a hoax. And if his promises were a hoax, then we are all doomed. But Luke he goes out of his way to make sure we understand that Jesus' father was not Joseph. And he wasn't any other man. It was, in fact, the Holy Spirit, God himself, who caused her to become pregnant apart from the participation of a human man. And Matthew's account is even more explicit on this issue. If you Take just a minute to turn back to Matthew. It's, it's a little ways back there. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And it's an extended section here, but let me read it for you because it's important. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, catch this next phrase, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, and here's why, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, keep reading, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
that is God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but, listen carefully, knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name, this is Joseph now, who's fully convinced, he calls the name of the child Jesus. Yahweh saves. I'm fairly confident he had no idea what that meant. He no doubt was thinking of Messiah in the way that the disciples always thought about Messiah, that he would come and be a conquering king. And he will, just not in his first coming. Just as kind of an aside, one of the evidences that this narrative is authentic is the fact that initially, Joseph didn't believe Mary. I love this aspect of the word of God. If men had written this and were just trying to tell a great story and convince you to believe it, uh, they probably wouldn't reveal so many discrepancies in the character and in the faith of the heroes that they, that they create in their literature. But here is, is Joseph. Like any other man in his position, he didn't believe her. But she came home from uh, visiting with Elizabeth for three months, and she had a baby bump. And, uh, and her explanation was not only unsatisfactory, it was infuriating. When she told him how she became pregnant, and, and why should he believe her? I mean, that had never happened before. There's no other way. Nothing like this had ever happened. Oh, sure, God had opened the womb miraculously for a number of women, but he's never done it without a father, a male father. Obviously, Joseph concluded Mary had concocted this ridiculous story to cover up her immorality, regardless of how out of sync that would be with the rest of her life. Things like that happen. And so Joseph goes so far as to make plans to divorce her. It's interesting, isn't it? He plans to divorce her. The law of the day called for her execution. The stoning to death as a result of immorality. If she was proven to be an immoral woman, I mean, mean, what proof do you need? She was pregnant and it wasn't with Joseph and they weren't married. There's just no way around this. But in his mercy, God made allowance, a, a concession of divorce if the husband chose to be gracious to his wife and not have her executed. And so Joseph, in verse 19, being a righteous man, planned to send her away. That's just a euphemism for divorce. He planned to send her away secretly. Thus, at the same time, ending the relationship and sparing her life. This was a righteous man who knew a gracious God. And he was just trying to do what he thought was right, not only in the eyes of God, but in this young lady whom he loved. But joy of all joy and blessing of all blessings, the Lord would not have it. And so off he sends his messenger, 
Again, to appear to Joseph, this time in a dream, to confirm Mary's story. Verse 20, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, Joseph. Don't be afraid. But then Matthew inserts his own commentary in verse 22 by telling us that the virgin birth should come as no surprise. After all, did not God give us a heads up on this centuries earlier when through the prophet Isaiah he said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Isaiah 7, 14. And so Joseph put away his plans of divorce. Can, can you imagine the joy when he woke up, realizing this, this, was, not, this was not some incoherent dream? Sometimes the, the stories our kids tell of their dreams at night are, are so entertaining because they're ridiculous. And, uh, and that's the way it is with, with dreams, right? This wasn't a dream. This was a vision from the Lord. It was completely coherent. And so Joseph put away his plans to divorce Mary and obeyed the messenger of the Lord. Now, she not only was taking on her own reproach, but now he would bear her reproach. But then, just to make sure that there is absolutely no ambiguity here, Matthew tells us, verse 25, but Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. You see this recurring theme, both in Matthew and in Luke. This was a miracle baby. It was a miracle baby. It was the only one who ever came into the world like this. And so let there be no mistakes, my friend. The, the only people who were witness to these things give us this testimony. The Word of God is clearly and unambiguously setting forth the reality that Jesus was born of a young woman named Mary who conceived quite apart from natural means. And that is to say, he came into the world by means of a miraculous virgin birth. And as such... He is indeed God in flesh, as John will say. It's interesting if you connect John 1.1 with John 1.14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him, and nothing, has been, nothing was created that was not created by him. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And connect that with John 3, 16, for, here's the reason for all of this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. For God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what Christmas is about. And we get confirmation on this from the Apostle Paul, who in Colossians 2.9 said this, In him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Amen. Now let's go back to Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 1 again, and back into the narrative of the angel and Mary and everything else that's taking place here. 
And let's see this young Mary as she's taking all of this in. It's obvious Gabriel was sensitive to the fact that Mary would find this message a little startling, to say the least. I mean, you got to imagine what Mary may have been thinking. I mean, I mean, come on, angel or no angel, the, the scenario you're laying out for me here, Gabriel, I mean, I mean this is impossible. He, he knew that that might be a natural response. And perhaps he, maybe he was suspecting it because that was kind of Zechariah's response. You know, prove it to me. And yet Mary was, Mary's heart was of a different kind. She trusted, and the Lord blessed her for her faithfulness. When he appeared to announce that, that she would have a son, in, um, she, was, she was startled. But Gabriel, that wasn't his only message. He knew what Mary would be struggling with. And so he comes to Mary and... Um, before Mary can even venture the question, how can this be possible, he offers evidence that will authenticate that his message is true. And this is where we pick up from last week. We saw the messenger arrive, and then we saw the, messenger, the message delivered, and then number three here, the, the message authenticated, verses 36 and 37. Take a look at that with me just briefly. Verse 36, and behold, this is... Still Gabriel speaking here to Mary, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. She's just discovering this. Apparently, the family doesn't know this yet. I mean, it's not like when, she, when Zacharias came out of the temple and gave her the news, they got on text, right, and started sharing it with one another. News doesn't travel that fast, and in pre-first century times or early first century times. And so it's, it's taken a little while, and the news has not really spread that far, and so this is fresh for Mary. She has no idea about her cousin, cousin who is like four or five times older than she. Now put yourself in Mary's sandals once again. An angel of God appears and tells you that you're about to become pregnant before you get married. You're beginning to understand that the baby is going to be unlike any baby who's ever been born. I mean, what a privilege, right? What an awesome honor. But wait, how am I going to explain all of this? How am I going to explain this to Joseph? How am I going to explain this to my mom and dad they're going to be shamed by this. Who in the world is ever going to be even the least, least bit inclined to believe my story on this? And how can I bear the shame of all of this by myself? Oh, beloved, when you look at the story of Elizabeth, What can you say except behold the compassion and kindness of the Lord? He anticipated all of this. He could have insisted that she just buck up and, and take it on the chin or take one for the team, right? Yeah, this is going to be hard, but suck it up. Let's just get the job done. But by his sovereign loving kindness, he establishes a, a support system 
six months ahead of time. Before Gabriel ever arrives. And what did he do? He miraculously opened the womb of Mary's dear elderly relative, Elizabeth. No one on earth would be better able to empathize with Mary in this, in, in, in this occasion. She may be 60 years old. She may be 70 years old. Scholars differ on how old she might be, but we know she was beyond childbearing years. And here she was, like Sarah before her, suddenly in her old age, able to bear a son. I mean, this, this only happens. God only does this when he's doing something great. No one on earth would be better able to empathize with her besides her 60-year-old pregnant cousin. How can it be possible that Gabriel's message to Mary is true? Gabriel tells us, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Creating a baby without the help of a man is just as easy for him as opening the womb of an elderly woman. He who spoke and everything that exists burst into to life. This was no big deal for God. It would be hard for people to believe but if God is God, this is easy. God can do anything he pleases. Nothing is impossible with God. And so when Gabriel departs, what's the first thing Mary does? Well, she immediately runs to Elizabeth's house. You've got to imagine, however, that she probably uh, went to her parents and said, Hey, I've been, you know, recently thinking, Elizabeth, I haven't seen her in a long time. <laughs> Can I go visit Elizabeth, you know, just for a little while, say three months or so? And apparently, parents gave her permission. And away she goes to Elizabeth's house just as fast as she can. She wants to know. She, she, I mean, no doubt she believes the angel. But she wants to know. She wants to look a human being in the face who is just as convinced of this as she is. You know, sometimes uh, God does that for us. I mean, prayer is wonderful. Talking to the Lord, you know, after you're reading his word and praying for things. And sometimes you just need a person who can affirm what the Lord has revealed in his word. And so when Gabriel departs, she takes off and she runs to Elizabeth's house. Look at verse 39. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of, uh, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it, pay attention to this, why is it, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb leaped with joy. And blessed is she who, what's the next word? 
believed. Elizabeth isn't making her believe. The evidence is not making her believe. She already believed. The Lord just wanted to encourage her. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You know what I think of the difference between the, the response that she gave to Gabriel and the response that Zechariah gave to Gabriel was one of belief or unbelief. I, I love this. <laughs> and we'll just jump back here if I can just divert from my notes for a minute. Go one page back, verse 18. So here's the story. <clears throat> Elizabeth is barren. Everybody knows it. And they want to have children her whole life. Zechariah is a priest. And there were many priests in, in Judah at the time. Judah is where Jerusalem is, where the temple is, Herod's temple. And the sacrificial system is in full swing, and there were a lot of priests, and, and you didn't get to go serve in the temple every day if you were a priest. There was a lot system, and, and, and there was kind of a rotation, and, and you may only get to go and do your, your priestly business in, in the temple, especially in the temple proper, maybe once a year, um, maybe once every Maybe once in a lifetime would you actually get to go into the temple and burn incense at the altar of incense? I mean, if you got to do that once in your lifetime, that was unique, that was glorious. And Zechariah got chosen. And I wish we had time to go into this, but he goes into the temple. A crowd gathers outside, as they always do. This was nothing unusual. Crowd gathers outside, and they're waiting. This is the big ceremony. And he would go in and he would pray. And it was a prescribed prayer. And he would, he would pour incense on the altar. And it would make smoke as, as kind of a symbol of prayer to God. And, and this is the temple of the Lord. So symbolically, the Lord is right there. This is his place. This is where he lives among his people in the temple. And he prays this prayer. And the prayer is essentially, Lord, remember your promise. Send your Messiah. Lord, remember your promise. Send your Messiah. Lord, remember your promise. Send your Messiah. And then he would walk out, and, and the people were out there with bated breath waiting for him to come out. And whenever he would come out, when the priest would come out, everybody would clap and cheer, and, and it was a big deal. I mean, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but for them, the priest just stood before God and made petition again that he would send Messiah. Except when Isaiah, I mean, when Zechariah goes in, he doesn't come back out. He goes in to offer incense, and before he gets a chance to do it, before he gets to pray the prayer, the angel of the Lord says, Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayer. What was his prayer? Well, I don't know if it was the prayer he was going to pray, the Lord send your Messiah, or the other prayer they've been praying their whole lives. Give us a child. Give us a child. Give us a child. Just one, Lord. Just give us a child. And the angel says, your prayer has been answered. And I want you to see Zechariah's response and the angel's response to his response. Quite different than his interaction with Mary. And Zechariah said, verse 18, to the angel, how will I know this to be true? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And I can just imagine the angel, Gabriel, he stands back. Let me just read the text for you. And I'll put a little hand motion with it as well. <laughs> Here's his response. <laughs> he says, how am I supposed to know this is, this is true? And the angel says, I am Gabriel. 
What do you mean, questioning me? Listen to what he says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and he has sent me to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent until... Uh, uh, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. This blessing will be fulfilled. You will be blessed, you unbelieving priest. We are, God is going to give you a son. But in the meantime, you're not going to say a word. And most scholars look at, at the full narrative here and believe that he was not only rendered incapable of speech, but incapable of hearing. He was deaf and dumb. Because when it comes time for him to declare what the name of the baby would be, it says the people made signs to him as if he couldn't hear either. And so for the whole nine months, he couldn't hear a thing. He couldn't say a word. Until it came time to name the boy. And Elizabeth said, his name will be John, right? And, and the friends say, no, 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 you don't have anybody in your family named John. And so they motioned with their hands to Zechariah, what do you want his name to be? And he wrote, his name is John. And immediately, his tongue broke forth, and, and this amazing, this amazing um, prophecy and exaltation from Elijah comes, just like it comes from Mary, just like it comes from Elizabeth, which we're about to see. Okay, that was a little bit of a parenthesis. I can't help it, I get excited about these things. <laughs> So verses 39 through 45, Mary was hoping to hear some affirmation, some empathetic words, no doubt, from her relative after explaining the reason for her unexpected visit. You've got to know she's been planning this the whole walk, you know, however far it was. And she's, she's trying to put into words what she's going to say to Elizabeth, trying to come up with something. Uh, I mean, that's in my sanctified imagination, that's what I'd be doing. But imagine her utter surprise and relief. And by the way, I think this is significant. Mary, no doubt, has been planning what she was going to say. When she gets there, Elizabeth responds before Mary says a word. Imagine her utter shock and surprise and relief when Elizabeth started affirming Gabriel's message before she even responded to Mary's greeting. Here comes Mary, she walks into the house. Mary, are you home? And, and she opens up. And all of these words pour out of her mouth. And we can see this in the text, 39 through 45. Um, I won't read that again, but we'll touch on it a little bit as we go. Two amazing things happen here when Mary enters the home of Elizabeth and made her presence known. First, Elizabeth's baby leaped in the womb. Now, remember, Elizabeth's unborn baby is not just an ordinary baby either. 
Now, she is born by na- he is born by natural means, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But this unborn baby was not any un- just any unborn baby. This was the promised forerunner to Messiah. And he would be named John, what? The Baptist. John the Baptist. He would be a prophet and... And he would be the forerunner of Christ. And later on, Jesus would even affirm this to his disciples. They were trying to figure out who John was. And Jesus says he, he was the prophet who was foretold. He was the one who come to make the path of Messiah straight. Mary may have been unsure, but John the Baptist wasn't. <laughs> and he was still in the womb. He wasn't even born yet. And he knew what was going on. But this shouldn't come as much as a surprise. After all, Gabriel had told John's father, Zechariah, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now that's not, that's not normative. But once in a while, and we see the same thing with Jeremiah. The prenatal leap of John in his mother's womb is nothing less than an expression, not expiration, an expression of spirit-filled joy when he sensed the arrival of Mary, the mother of the Savior. Now, please don't don't hear me making too much of this. I mean, this was a a baby. This This was unique. You know, he doesn't have language skills. He doesn't, something miraculous was going on here. God the Holy Spirit was poking the baby, tickling the baby, I don't know, but communicating joy to Elizabeth. And that's how she interpreted it. The prenatal leap of John was a spirit-filled manifestation to Mary and to Elizabeth. The second amazing thing here is that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit Throughout the scriptures, being filled with the Holy Spirit is often connected with speaking a special message to God. Some level of prophesying takes place. For example, in Deuteronomy 34, Joshua is filled with the Spirit of God and he speaks to the people of Israel on behalf of the Lord. In Luke 1:67, again, Zechariah was filled with the Spirit and prophesied at the naming of John, John the Baptist. Acts chapter 2, the disciples were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in unlearned languages. In Acts 4, Peter, filled with the Spirit, preaches his second sermon and no doubt was filled with the Spirit when he preached his first one, although that phrase wasn't used there. And such is the case here. As soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, the Holy Spirit took control of Elizabeth like a a concert pianist takes hold of a Steinway and begins playing. And out of her mouth comes the words that God wants her to say. And notice Elizabeth's tone. And Luke tells us in verse 42, she cried out with a loud voice. This was, this was no subtle or restrained affirmation of Mary's divine child the Holy Spirit filled her with an unrestrainable enthusiasm over the fact that the woman who carried the very Son of God in her womb had just entered into her home. 
Now let that last phrase settle in for a minute. Now this young woman, this teenage girl, no doubt, was carrying in her womb the very Son of God. I want to give you kind of a theological picture of this. Consider this. In, in, in the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel, everyone understood that the tabernacle or the temple was the place where God manifest his presence with his people. God lived among his people in the tabernacle, in the temple. And, and theologians will point back and say, the Garden of Eden was the first temple of the Lord. It was the place where God dwelt among his people. And the curse as a result of sin was that separation between man and God. They were kicked out of the presence of God, that place where God designed to dwell among his people. Still, later, Moses would build a place. God would have Moses build the tent of meeting, as it was called, also named the tabernacle. It was the place where God was present among his people. And still later, Solomon built a great temple of the Lord. And 2 Chronicles in, in, in chapter 5 reveals that on the day Solomon inaugurated the temple and the sacrificial system of the day, the glory of the Lord descended upon the temple and it became the place where God lived among his people. It truly was, not just a building, it was the temple of the Lord. But consider this. When Mary visited the home of Elizabeth, the womb of Mary was the very tabernacle of God. It was the place where God lived among his people for a period of nine months before Jesus was born. No wonder the baby John the Baptist leaped for joy. God in flesh in the same state that John himself was in, in the womb. He leaped for joy. He was in the womb of Elizabeth, and yet when Mary arrived in the home, somehow he knew. Or somehow he, God used him to communicate joy to Elizabeth. And by the way, it's also remarkable that Elizabeth herself knew that Mary was carrying God made human in the warmth of her womb. For she says in verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now that's remarkable because Mary went, no doubt, thinking, how do I tell her I'm pregnant? And how do I convince her that I had no relationship with a man, that God the Holy Spirit did something in me that he's never done in any other woman in all of human history. How am I going to explain that? She didn't have to. God had sent Mary to Elizabeth's home for encouragement. Now listen again to the inspired message he had waiting for her. Mary steps into the house, probably said something like, Elizabeth, are you home? And suddenly this old woman, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins crying out and saying these words. 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Yep, she's home. I mean, this must have, it must have overwhelmed Mary. Uh, She was probably tempted to collapse there. I mean, all of this anxiety, how do I communicate this? How do I convince her? And she doesn't have to say a word. Elizabeth already knows. How does she know? It's only one way. Nobody else knew. Not even Joseph at this point. Nobody knew. But when Elizabeth opened her mouth, you know when Elizabeth found out, I think, when the Holy Spirit filled her mouth with words. Oh, what an overwhelming encouragement this must have been to Mary. Regardless of the rejection and ridicule she would soon experience, from those who would not believe her story. She now knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God himself was behind it all. And he was not only with her, and the praise team sang this a little while ago, he was in her. How can we comprehend that somehow we could hold God in our hands? I love Shelley's book on church history in in plain language. He said, the primary feature, what makes Christianity different than all the other religions of the world, is that this is the only religion wherein the primary feature of its faith rests upon a humiliated God. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to be born of woman. He who has to humble himself to behold the things that are in heaven humbled himself to become a child so that he could be a man. This indeed is an amazing story. But I left out a key verse that we must address before we close. We've seen... The messenger arrives and the message is announced and the message is authenticated and then finally the message is received or accepted. Verse 38, watch this. We talked about this briefly last week, but it bears repeating. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's what he was waiting for. He knew he'd get that response from Mary, no doubt. And as soon as she said it, he was gone. Mary stands before us today not as the mother of God or the mediatrix through whom we approach the father or approach the son, as some would assert. But she does stand before us as a woman who was blessed by God because she believed his word. 
Mary is a wonderful example of a true woman of faith. And isn't it true that anyone who believes God's word and acts on the truth that he believes is profoundly blessed? When we were raising our children early on, and we would take some masking tape and make a big circle, and we would work with them in understanding Ephesians 6, verse 1, which we taught to them before John 3, 16. <laughs> children, obey your parents, for this is right. Um, but that's not the end of the statement. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. It is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long on the earth. And we'd sit them in that circle and we'd say, this is the circle of blessing. And while, while you live in obedience to God, and, and when they're young, obedience to God means obeying your mom and dad. You are going to be blessed. If you step outside the circle, we're going to discipline you because we love you. We want you to get this. We love you. We want you in the circle, not so we can control you, but rather so that you will be blessed of the Lord. And you know what? Mom and dad have to be in that circle too. We're not under parental authority anymore, but we're always under God's authority. And living under his rule, living as he calls us to live, is the way of blessing and peace and eternal life. Even before she witnessed the overwhelming evidence in the home of Elizabeth, Mary accepted the angel's message as true, and she submitted to it in humble obedience. Here's what she said. May it be done to me according to your what? Your word. Lord, I've always believed your word. You've never given me one reason to doubt your word. No, I'm not going to doubt it now. And that's why Elizabeth could say in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. I can't help but think that there are some today who are listening to this message right now that the Lord is working on your heart. And perhaps this is the first time you've seriously wrestled with the biblical claim that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, come to earth to save a world of sinners. You know, I can't convince you of that. But I can kind of run this backwards a little bit and show you the first bit of data that you already agree with. And if you don't, then you just don't have your eyes open to reality. And that is that every man is a sinner. Um, Benjamin Franklin no, it was, um, it was um, Abe Lincoln who wrestled with that question. I guess he was talking to a friend about it. He wrote this in a letter. And he said, the Bible says that all men are sinners. And in his dry fashion, he said, I suppose we could have deduced that without the Bible. Amen. I remember there was a, a girl in our international student ministry back when we had that who was visiting. She was... Uh, um, just a, a great violinist from TC, TCU. And we had a, a man visiting who was a friend of David Hornbrook. 
And I was sitting talking to him, and this girl walks in, and, and this elderly man engages her. You could tell he's just bright and sharp and ready to, ready to have a good conversation. And she comes over, and she likes him. And uh, he was just a very magnetic personality. And, and so he dives into the gospel with her, and, uh, and uh, before he does, he says, uh, so tell me about yourself. Where are you from? You're from Romania. And uh, how many children are in your family? And do you have any sisters? Yes, I have a sister. And uh, can I ask you a question? Uh, if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Uh, what would you say to him? And she said, I don't believe in God. And he said, well, what are you going to do with your sin? And she said, I don't believe in sin. And he said, oh, okay, okay. Well, let's talk about something else. Now, let's talk about your sister. Tell me, um, how much effort did your mom and dad have to, how hard did they have to work to teach your sister how to be disobedient? And she said, they didn't have to teach her at all. She came by it naturally. And he went, gotcha. You already know. You already believe. You already understand the problem. The problem in this world, the problem in America today, the problem in my own home today, the problem in my own heart, is that we are all sinners. And that becomes a really significant problem when you realize that the God who created us is holy. How are you going to be reconciled to God? That's the ultimate question. Not what are you going to do for a career? Not who are you going to marry? Not are you going to have children or no children or... The most important question that lies before you this Christmas is what will you do with Jesus Christ? He came to rescue you. Do you realize that you're a sinner and need to be rescued? Do you, need, do you realize that you're a sinner and you need a Savior? Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that the Son of God did not consider the privilege of heaven something to be clung to when a world of sinners was in danger of suffering eternal, the eternal consequences of, this, of, of their sin. And so what did he do? Well, Paul explains to us in Philippians chapter 2 that, that rather than allow us just to face our, our self-imposed demise or self-inflicted demise, Paul explains that Jesus, in his great love for us, in his compassion toward us, in his mercy toward us, took on the form of a servant and came into the world as a real human being. He lived more than 30 years in this world to fulfill God's standard of righteousness by his perfect life. And he died to bear our punishment through his horrific death on the cross so that you could be saved. Remember what the angel said to Joseph? Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. My friend, you have to start there. You know the guilt and the shame of your own sin. And somehow you managed to suppress it, and you can't suppress it forever. You live in the atmosphere of a holy God. He is everywhere. You cannot escape him. And he loves you. 
He didn't come merely to teach us things about God. He didn't come merely to be an example of how to live. He came to live in our place and to die in our place. Here's how Paul put it in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, God, that is the Father, made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? It means that on the cross, Jesus was treating his son as if he lived your wicked, rebellious life so that he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect, holy, and righteous life. That's what the cross is about. That's what the incarnation is about. That's what it means when God said he's sending his son to be the savior of the world. That call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God is not out to get you. He's out to save you. But you've got to admit that you need saving you got to humble yourself. you got to come to God and say, God, I know. I don't need a theology course. I already know that there's nothing I can do to earn your favor. I already know that the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. I'm just fearful that you won't receive me because of my sin. The Apostle Paul calls him, him who justifies the ungodly. If you are ungodly, you are the only person the gospel works for. It has no effect on the righteous, people who consider themselves righteous. If you are wicked and unholy, if you see your sin, you are the only one that God gave the gospel for. What does this mean? It means that the, the way of salvation is wide open to you if you'll receive it. This is the gift of Christmas. There is no other gift you will receive this week that will not pale. I'm trying to think of a better word for it. No, disappear under the light of the glory of this eternal gift. And it is the gift of God to you if you will, if you will have it. All you need to do is humble yourself before him, believe in him, and as you do, you will discover that even that is a gift. You will do it because he wants you to, and he empowers you to. Throw yourself upon the mercy of the court. Fly to the cross, and you will find a merciful Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for this gospel. There is nothing like it in all the world, in all the world religions, in all the world literature. Nothing like this because in reality, there never was anything like this. There never will be again anything like this. You have sent your son once for all. And I pray, Father, that some hearing my voice will give up on themselves and fly to Christ and find him to be everything that you, Father, had promised to be for them in Jesus. And these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.